are here at 11FS headquarters in London, WeWork Oldgate, for episode 6 of Blockchain Insider. Today we're breaking down high-profile bankers leaving for cryptocurrency startups, the Chicago Board of Exchange announces that it will launch Bitcoin futures, ICO funding tops half a billion dollars in the month of July and $1.6 billion this year, we talk about blockchain jobs with Zeth, and we look back at the first week of Bitcoin Cash. Now, on with the show. Cool. So today for the news, of course, we have our regular co-host, Colin Platt, joining us. Colin, how are you, sir? Doing just fine. How are you doing, Simon? I'm very well. And we have Zeth joining us. We'll find out more about Zeth later. But Zeth, how are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. So Colin, kick us off. There's a story here on Coindesk about a State Street Bitcoin bull, which is an interesting sentence. Uh, there's a blockchain boss leaving to launch a cryptocurrency startup. So this is somebody who worked at State Street who's launching a cryptocurrency startup. Have I got that right? Yeah. So um, this this gentleman used to work at State Street, which is a, an extremely large US-based bank with global coverage. And he worked uh, primarily in their FX department where he set up um, a company that was ultimately acquired by by the bank for the eye-watering sum of $564 million um, called Curnex. So Hu Leung, gentleman that set this up, has called his uh, new startup Project Omni. I imagine that's not the final name of it. What's really interesting is this is not a banker leaving to do a blockchain startup looking at the technology. This is a banker looking to use cloud and regular plain old technologies to build something that exists in traditional markets for things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, he actually wants to make this thing accessible. Uh, what what problem is he trying to solve? Well, uh, these are getting to be quite large markets. Um, we're talking 100 billion plus for all cryptocurrencies combined by market cap, um, which a lot of people will debate whether that's a great measure. But he's talking about more than $20 million worth of these things moving every single day. And they're done in a kind of an old fashioned way by people calling each other. And I'm, I've been a party to com- some of these conversations, uh, watching people com- converse. And you go, well, we're talking about this cool new blockchain thing. And people are literally picking up a call and saying, will you buy Bitcoin from me? I've got a client that wants to sell. Or will you sell me Bitcoin for a client? Um, he's trying to make this thing electronic, which exists in traditional markets like foreign exchange. Um, so he wants to bring all this together and see what that looks like uh, as far as a business. I think it's really interesting and is a good bridge between mainstream finance and this new asset class. I think that's a really interesting idea, Colin. Uh, there was a story on Cointelegraph I was reading earlier uh, that, that's not linked to this one, where it said that there was a company that had 64 hedge funds lining up to work with them to access those crypto assets because they're getting so much client demand now to buy different crypto assets and cryptocurrencies. If people are calling their broker and saying, I need to buy some of this Bitcoin stuff, it seems that the market is waking up and that actually to have somebody build the infrastructure that allows you to sell those crypto assets or buy those crypto assets as an institution that seems like something that the market's going to need in the near future and when people ask you know how does this stuff become real well buying and selling these assets seems to be the 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 crossover point it's early to say how big how wide the net will go on bitcoin whether it becomes um, a truly a global asset on on par with something like a precious metal like a silver or maybe even a gold um, we got a long way to go till there. Uh, all the world's gold is worth something like seven trillion dollars, and and all of the Bitcoin assets market cap is something like fifty or sixty billion dollars, depending on the day we're listening to this thing. But I think a lot of investors have looked at the run up in Bitcoin this year alone, 
and what I'm looking at, it started someplace around $800. Now it's trading about $3,500. If you're a hedge fund that's looking at getting returns, um, that's not a bad place to start looking. It's not a bad return at all, Colin. Uh, so next story up, uh, I think along this theme, there's one in the Merkle that says that ex-Morgan Stanley CEO has publicly backed a project called Omega One. So they all sound like something from sci-fi. Uh, a startup looking to raise $950 million in their upcoming initial coin offering. Uh, so what is Omega One? Who's this ex-Morgan Stanley CEO? What's going on here, Colin? Okay, so let, let's take that in reverse order. Um, John Mack is the former CEO of Morgan Stanley, which again, extremely large US bank. Uh, he ran the bank for several years. They are a bank of the tune of uh, $90 billion. Uh, so it's, it's not a small thing. And he is kind of coming off the heels of some of these other big uh, ICOs and looking at saying, why don't we raise a bunch of money in a token and let's set up a lot of these functions that exist in banks. So this is, I would put someplace halfway between the last story we talked about and a lot of those high profile DLT or blockchain projects um, trying to say, we don't necessarily want a, a purely peer to peer cash like a Bitcoin. We want something that can provide liquidity to the market. So if I want to go out and buy a hundred million of this coin, I don't push the price up 3000%. Um, so they're looking at something. This is Omega One's project looking at something that can balance halfway between how the banking system works and how a, um, a cryptocurrency works. Really interesting idea, I think. Um, we're hoping to have some someone from the team come join us on the show next week or the week after to talk a bit more about what they're doing. This will be definitely one to watch whether you want to invest in it or not. Uh, and again, we do not provide any investment recommendations on this show. Uh, and do, definitely do your due diligence if you're looking at doing it. But I think this will be a really interesting project to, to watch whether it takes off or not. I like that idea, Colin. Um, this idea that you've got people building stuff for the institutions, inside the institutions to access the market. Now we're talking about somebody building the bridge between the old world and the new world, if I can, if I dare call it that, or the traditional world and, and the emerging world. And this bridge between traditional capital markets and crypto markets, um, they describe it as providing a balance sheet intermediation and trusted counterparty, operating as an efficient and and trusted platform for institutional large-scale investors seeking to invest in cryptocurrency market. I think that's a kind of the sweet spot that we're hearing a lot about. But the article also goes on to notice that there was uh, Bancor and EOS and several others that have talked about this. And some folks over at Argo said, you know, they tried to do this and failed before. Um, but is it possible that having bankers who know their way around uh, capital markets and uh, financial markets may be able to get this done because they understand how the inside of those markets work? a bit better or is this just uh still feels a little bit far away to you what's um speculation purely we don't know but uh purely, purely speculation um i mean look simon you and i both came from banks so I, I think uh we'll be a bit biased when we say that people that worked in a bank probably uh aren't completely clueless um there there is a big gap between the the crypto anarchist world that invented the likes of bitcoin and uh, a traditional banker i i definitely think that um it, it's worth balancing both of them whether this is the the project to do it, I don't know. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say. So I, I looked into um, this this project. It seems like just a, a, a cryptocurrency market just maturing a little bit, allowing institutional investors to come in and put a hundred million. It's okay for me and you to invest on exchange, and you know maybe we buy a thousand pounds worth or whatever it is. It doesn't really affect us that much. But when there's such little liquidity in the market, a project like this that basically will either 
come up to an agreement directly on their platform or will surf all the exchanges and make sure they pick up all of your your order and keep the liquidity relatively spread across all the exchanges means that institutional investors will come and they feel more comfortable investing rather than buying you know a million pounds worth of of ethereum and losing seven percent in terms of the order book having to buy down the order book and then when they sell back out losing another seven percent and losing 14 percent on a million quid is a lot compared to maybe me or you losing you know a like hundred quid or something like that mm-hmm. Uh, and Colin, for those of us who have worked in banking, that sounds very familiar to the way banks work today. We're rebuilding the way things have always worked, but with newer tech, maybe? Oh, yes and no. I mean, um, let, let's let's go back to the internet here. When people first started out, they everything was going to be peer-to-peer there, and then we saw the emergence of Google. Um, Google, you could argue, looks in, in part a whole lot like advertisement functions of yesteryear. Um, does that mean that they are the same as you know the Madison Avenue um, advertisement houses? No, not at all. They're very different. Um, but there, there is definitely a value, I think, in in bringing some of these concepts that have been tried and tested in more traditional markets for thousands of years. Uh, some of them maybe only hundreds of years or tens of years, but there is some experience out there. Um, and and we're going to talk with Zeth about people bringing experience in later for for different roles in this industry. I think there's room for a lot of different types of people, um, and it's good to see that ex-bankers, senior bankers that have a lot of sway in the industry are taking this very seriously. And it's not just you know the the little team sitting there off on the side uh, playing around with this thing called Bitcoin. So big step forward for the industry, I think, if nothing else. Absolutely, Colin. And I think what's interesting to me is this word convergence. We're seeing that uh, it used to be Bitcoin versus DLT. It used to be uh, it was public blockchain or it was private blockchain. Now we're seeing that the middle ground between those two appears to absolutely be the sweet spot. And the next story really talks to that in my mind. So the Chicago Board of Options and Exchanges, if I said that right, plans to launch Bitcoin futures and announces agreement with the Winklevoss brothers, their digital currency exchange Gemini. And this one's on CNBC. So this is like a you know, big news in financial markets. So tell me a little bit about what an option is. Um, tell me about the CBOE um, and tell me why this is significant. All right. Yeah. So no, really, really interesting one. And I think this kind of goes with the theme of this is becoming an asset class um, and it could be a big one. It might stay a niche one. Um, so they're actually launching, though it's the Chicago Board board of Options and Exchange, they're actually launching Bitcoin futures. This isn't their first future product, but let's talk a bit about what a future is. Um, so a future is a right to trade something in some point uh, in the future. Uh, interesting name, that one. So uh, very popular would be a, a product that uh, the CME, which is just down the street from these guys, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, is the, the S&P 500, or you can go into London and trade the FTSE 100. Um, this is to say today the price of something is 1000 in three months time. I'd like to trade the difference between the price today and that price. Um, what's really interesting about these is these are not small companies. Um, the CBOE in options terms trades somewhere in the realm of a trillion dollars worth of these things a month. Not, not a small market. <laughs> um, and they're looking at how you can do specifically Bitcoin futures or contracts for difference, uh, where we say the Bitcoin price is $3,500 today. I'm going to go in as a hedge fund and trade either long or short on that price, because I think it's going to go up or down. And I'm going to do this all through this Voss exchange based in New York. Again, big, big thing with maturity. This potentially brings in all types of new participants. Now, one thing I will caution here is a lot of people are getting 
very excited about this. These exchanges, the CBOE, amongst others, do launch a lot of products and not all of them take off. Uh, it's something we've seen. So it may not be banks coming into it. Interestingly, these guys are also going to open it up, at least in part, to uh, retail or small traders, small quote-unquote traders, that are uh, only looking to trade a couple of thousand or million. Now, that's an interesting point, Colin, all of them. Uh, I think, yeah, you can't guarantee the success of something just because somebody's uh, with a significant size has said it's done. But actually, it, again, it's gone from maybe even a year ago or six months ago we were talking about will there be a bitcoin etf and things getting knocked back but the momentum here seems to be steadily building um and again that subject of convergence comes up uh and, and i guess the next story is one by uh isda the international swaps and derivatives association releasing a white paper around smart contracts so again traditional body doing something around smart contracts what's what's happening with this one yeah so so isda is a it's a really old school organization for a lot of reasons, um, but it's not that old. Um, it was set up in the 80s specifically to help banks that wanted to trade swaps. Swaps are not too unlike futures, if you're not familiar with it. It's um, to take um, a fixed payment and translate that against an index payment. And what that means is I, I would agree, Simon, every year to pay you 2% of a notional amount. So let's say a million um, versus a LIBOR or uh, a floating rate that every year we look at that rate and I say, let's add half a percent to whatever that rate is, and you and I trade the difference. Um, the reason that ISDA was created is essentially all of these things are done between banks or, or through OTC markets. And uh, they were set up to simplify the legal documents between different players across the globe. Now, this is significant, not not because they're looking at cryptocurrencies this time. Uh, this is significant because they're looking at um, how smart contracts might fit in. This is potentially a really big step forward for something that either functions on a private or a public blockchain, potentially, to say, I'm JP Morgan, I want to sell an option or any other, uh, let's say, a loan over Ethereum or over a private uh, blockchain like a, a Corda, uh, R3's Corda, to uh, a Morgan Stanley. This is uh, what at least a lot of people in the industry have been talking about potentially never happening. And this is a big step forward where they acknowledge that although it's still early days, it's something that they need to keep their eye on, if nothing else, and potentially get ahead of the curve on this. So I'm definitely watching this uh, because I think it's, it's incredibly interesting to see companies like this. And let's let's um, put this just in context. The CEO of ISDA used to be one of the, the commissioners for the CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission in Washington, D.C. So this is the big U.S. regulator that deals with these types of contracts. It's it's not somebody who just comes into this and says, oh, well, let me just set up a, a conference here or there. These guys are very serious, very well respected in the industry, and this isn't something to take lightly. So we've got two ex-bankers leaving to go build some sort of convergence startup or some sort of capability to trade in digital assets. We've got a traditional exchange attempting to launch the ability to buy them. And we've got a traditional standards body sort of saying, here's how we would operate with them in the future, or at least how here's how we think we might make them work in the future uh, and make our existing contracts forward compatible with the idea of a smart contract. But we've got to get back to token madness because that story of convergence is interesting but whilst all that's happening we've seen that ico funding so the initial coin offerings token sales topped 500 million dollars in july alone bringing the all-time total to 1.6 billion dollars we are living through history right now are we not yeah I, I was staggered when i saw that 
Given, given what had recently happened in July with the hard fork, I was surprised to see that a third of all ICA funding had happened in the month prior to the hard fork and all that was going on with Bitcoin. I thought a lot of, or I was under the impression that a lot of the ICOs that were happening in July were quite badly affected by this. When I saw that, I was like, what? Obviously not. Obviously, there's still loads of money flowing into it. And that's even without some of these other big ones that are still to come through. We we saw um, CoinDesk have released their own ICO tracker. Um, you can now there are now professional tools to be able to see what's really really happening in this space. And Colin, I mean, there's no shortage of news as well. There's uh, a company called uh, well, an organisation called Filecoin who've raised fifty two million in their pre-sale and they're eyeing another seven hundred million dollars, which is eye watering. And Filecoin is a really really interesting one. Zeth, you were describing it um, before we were speaking. I like the way you described it. I know I was talking to jason earlier and he sort of said this is the one that's the amazon s3 killer like, yeah, yeah yeah so it's sort of like uh, so i i looked at their white paper and i read and there's there's similar use cases already out there so people like um the guys at sea coin yeah. or ethereum swarm uh made safe yeah made safe storage or storage yeah. uh similar use case but i um when i when i read the white paper it's sort of like a mix between amazon s3 and, and BitTorrent, and BitTorrent's like three percent of the internet i mean it's huge but the problem is is that there's no incentive for for doing it people do it or they have a node because they're passionate about the space this offers people the opportunity to be financially remunerated for having a node for for holding documents and storing stuff it, it's it's quite a way off though. I mean, uh, Amazon S3 is enormous, and they've got data centers everywhere. We talked about uh, data as the new oil of, mm. as early as 2010 and 2011, but really the only people taking advantage of that were the people who were the data barons, the oil barons of this, the age, which is your Googles, your Facebooks, and so on. But we now found ourselves in in this interesting position where data actually storing and holding onto it could be tradable under Filecoin. Now the the value of the individual. Uh, data inside of that and what that means and uh, in kind of turning that data into meaning that's kind of a separate subject and granted google and facebook do actually do a lot more around targeting what's inside that data that's that aside though um there's a broader theme here about building web 3.0 and building that next generation of infrastructure it was jeff garzik uh who was involved in building the file system for linux uh was one of the core developers of bitcoin way back on an early episode of fintech insider our, our, our system the show talked about blockchain as being the evolution so we had kind of uh, the mainframe model we had the client server model we had the cloud model and then we have the distributed ledger slash blockchain model in which our infrastructure is distributed amongst lots of parties and we incentivize each other in some way shape or form to do things and the storage of data that is decentralized and works like a file system hugely interesting idea colin do you have thoughts on this one yeah so one one thing that i've I found really interesting about IPFS and Filecoin is um, we talk a lot on this show and and in the blockchain theme at large about financial services. Uh, This is is pure and simple what Amazon does, and this is where majority of their profits come from. To think that a company that I still think is, is fairly innovative, fairly young, could dramatically be challenged by blockchain is fascinating. Um, and to think these guys, 
Again, we are not sure what's going to come out of it, but uh, if they're able to make this thing work, that's potentially massive. So there's a couple of interesting things in the uh, Coindesk story here is that uh, some of the notable backers include Union Square Ventures and Sequoia Capital. Now, if you go look up some of the companies Sequoia Capital have invested in, it's like a who's who of Silicon Valley, uh, as well as um, the Winklevoss Trends um, and Y Combinator president Sam Altman. And Y Combinator, of course, has spun out the likes of Airbnb and amazing companies companies so this is really hitting the the middle of you know the, the very heart of what's going on in silicon valley and to me that's significant and before the last three or four months i hadn't seen the 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 old silicon valley money the sand hill road money really moving into the space now that's well and truly happening uh, I, I think that's that's kind of a watershed moment and with tezos we saw tim draper had invested on i think the company that uh, tezos is working with so we're seeing both wall street money and silicon valley money moving into this space in a big way it's it's kind of an interesting time in that there are different parties you know those skyrocketing crypto asset prices have kind of made everybody pay attention but then nobody knows if this is ever going to be a thing none of this code really exists yet yeah this uh, it's really interesting the, the way that they've structured the uh, the ico is really interesting actually so they've teamed up with angel list to create CoinList, a platform where you need to register, almost like a crowdfunding platform. But they go they go through KYC, and you need to be um, accredited investor in, the, in order to invest in it. So actually, it's it's almost targeted more towards institutional money, which goes against a lot of the other ICOs, where it's just like me and you, yeah, I buy it. Let's throw in five ether at it. This was the subject of democratization of access to capital, which is a lot of words, which basically means you and I can invest, right? Whereas the problem is, we saw that SEC guidance a couple of weeks ago, and the way a lot of people always got around that SEC guidance and the Howie test and issuing securities was, you had to be a sophisticated investor, in air quotes. And a sophisticated investor that there are other tests, but broadly, do you have enough money? Um, If you have over a a certain like $5 million in liquid assets um, or, or X in, in capital assets, then you are considered a sophisticated investor and you there is a lot less uh, kind of requirement to protect you as an investor because it's considered you know what you're doing, which makes sense because you don't want mom and pop investing their life savings in these things and losing all their money. But at the same time, it's interesting now that we've seen a lot of, as you say, uh, token sales focus on the non-sophisticated investor. This one has really focused on that. And I think these guys are supported by Cooley um, Law Firm, uh, who are very connected with the Stanford scene. These are all Stanford academics. It's a real Silicon Valley story. Um, and of course, uh, Patrick Merck from Cooley is a well-known uh, lawyer in this space who's been kind of in the Bitcoin community for quite some time. And I, I think another thing I'll throw in there is quite interesting is we, we've spoken with the guys at Consensus. Uh, we had Jeremy on the show. John Lillick has been very publicly uh, out there talking about how um, ICOs were kind of a, a response and a regurgitation um, and rejection of how Silicon Valley works and problems that a lot of developers saw. I, I know that we were at this developers convention for Ethereum in 2015, and a lot of these VCs showed up and said, oh, this is kind of all a joke, and now they've been jumping into it. Um, what's really funny is if we kind of talk about blockchain in, in Bitcoin and uh, versus banks terms, I mean, there was, a, there was a time that we were involved with this thing where it was like, uh, we like the technology, but not the currency. And then ultimately, it kind of both of them fit together, but the currency stayed strong. Maybe we're going to see that this whole democratization of, of VC and early venture funding 
might actually take off more and more in the US and, and abroad. We've seen it through um, direct crowdfunding in massive forms before blockchain came along, especially in, in the UK. So maybe this will be a trend to, to watch. It might not go away. That's not to say that um, everything's going to fit within regulations, but there's still room for regulations to move and adapt as well. I really want to pick up on that point about the thesis that uh, John Lillich puts out there quite often, which is the age of the winner-take-all platform was what Silicon Valley was pushing. So you saw Uber was the centralized uh, way of doing decentralization. You saw uh, Google was a platform. Facebook was a platform. We all put all of our data in this one centralized platform versus decentralized infrastructure where we all own a piece of it. As all owning a piece of it helps fund it and therefore there is no centralized body which is subject to corruption or to profiteering uh, which if you go back to the early days of the internet a lot of the internet pioneers ended up really disappointed with the internet as we find it today it was going to reinvent the world it was going to reinvent governance but it's become subject to the to the world and the norms and the things that have worked for thousands of years so we find history potentially repeating here where idealists have uh, kind of created a technology from the world of anarchism but uh, various people are adopting that and whatever is most successful will probably be adopted by the market rather than be what's the most ideal. And and if I can just finish on that, what, what I think absolutely agree with all of that, what is really interesting here is you have a lot of these idealists who have a lot of money now. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case with the early days of the internet. So if I have 500 bitcoins still floating around or 10,000 bitcoins, I can kind of uh, get in there with my ideals and keep them afloat a little bit longer. Absolutely. Though this uh, world of the crypto risk reinvesting is very, very interesting. Well, I'm afraid we're running up against it on time for news. And there was so much we didn't even have chance to cover. We don't have time to mention that lawmakers in Australia are pushing to make Bitcoin a legal currency, or even the fact that WikiLeaks now accepts Zcash. But you can find out more, I'm sure, from Google and, and, and doing some reading. We'd love to cover that at some point. Great. So Colin and I are now here with Zeth Caseros. Zeth, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm not too bad at all, my friend. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, sure. My name's um, Zeth Kathira. I am the co-founder of Plexus Resource Solution. We are a uh, specialist recruiter or talent partner in the blockchain DLT and cryptocurrency space. Well, we need some specialists. So we brought you onto the show because I've been asked the question quite a few times. How do I get a job in one of these blockchain things? I'm sure you probably get that I question. Get, I probably get that a bit more than you, yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. So um, let's let's walk through this then because we you probably hear a lot of different things from a lot of different places. But start me out. What type of companies are hiring? Because there's new, there's old and everything in between. What are you seeing? So uh, years ago when I first started, it was um, predominantly financial services companies. And so it was consultancies linked with those guys. Recently, it's been an explosion of like automotive, utilities, defense, supply chain, all over the place. Not just startups as well, like corporates are getting on this, big, big consultancy firms too. Very, very cool. And I first met you, I think, probably about four, three years ago, yeah, 2014. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the good ones. My, You've been around for first, a while. My first Bitcoin in 2014. Yeah. I thought I'd see what everyone was talking about. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. So, see, this is the thing, right? So, um, the, I've had con- recruiters coming at me out of the woodwork saying, hey, I've got all of this amazing talent. But what are you seeing those companies asking for? Like, what sort of skills should be people be looking for? I mean, I've heard people saying they're looking for 10 years of blockchain experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get that. Uh, Generally speaking, they're looking for developers. Um, So basically, you get three types of developers I'm finding. Core developers, they're like the guys who would have built the actual Bitcoin protocol or the Ethereum protocol. Then you get your back-end developers who build on top of it. 
like the emergence of Solidity for smart contracts. And then lastly, you get your front-end devs, which are like React front-end guys. They're less common, but they're becoming more common now. Well, because you've got to have something that touches the user at some point. You've got to have not just code, but you've got to have things somebody can use. Yeah, exactly. And you're also seeing a lot more DevOps guys coming into the space as well, just in terms of like continuous integration in terms of some of the work they're doing. So that's coming a lot more in the last sort of six months, I've found. So what percentage would you say is like technical development experience that you're seeing? Is it? Oh, I'd say 70, 80% of them are developer-based. You get some. So I've had some more stuff around like digital marketing, particularly pushing ICOs. Mm-hmm. You're also getting some stuff around subject matter experts or PMs, but most of it's developers, 80% plus. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So um, if you are a developer but you've not been in the blockchain or dlt space before like what sort of skill set and background do you need uh it's it's tough so generally speaking you want somebody who's maybe worked with multiple languages and maybe big data sets distributed systems or um maybe like polyglot engineers is probably what you call them each of these platforms are built on different languages and so someone who understands multiple languages is better equipped to handle the obstacle the complexity of working in blockchain so I guess this is the challenge, right? We're still seeing a market that's pretty complex yeah. and you're looking for diamonds, really, because there aren't many of these polyglots, as you put them No, out. no, they're not. They're not. There's a lot more guys coming through um, or the newer platforms uh, are looking for a lot of functional programmers, which is an emerging trend across the whole of the, the dev space. But well, What's like, a functional programmer? So a functional program, in traditional sense, functional programmer is someone like uh, with Haskell or Scala or Lisp or... So these newer languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some of them are quite old but they were traditionally like academic languages but then they've moved now into like the mainstream they're generally better in terms of handling a lot of data hence why they work quite well with blockchains mm-hmm. interesting so um what trends are you seeing um i guess from the the growth perspective is it like uh coming as you said there were a couple of industries there but if you were sort of to get a candidate and they were saying right where do i take my career now i've got a little bit of dev skill i've worked in project management here and there a bit of ba here and there like what advice are you giving out generally so there are three main platforms currently and these guys are generally leading most of the corporate um, blockchain innovation. That's the stuff that R3 are doing with Corda. It's the stuff that um, the Linux Foundation are doing and, and, and IBM as well with uh, Hyperledger and the Ethereum Alliance. Generally speaking, most of the big corporate projects are that. But I'm starting to even hear about um, people already looking to integrate stuff like IOTA, which is incredibly new still, but people are still looking at, at some of the newer things that are only just sort of starting to come through. But in terms of what to expect and how to maybe get into that space, all of these companies, there's no shortage of these projects or programs that are looking for some form of um, developers to help build their open source projects. And so what I would recommend is start looking up online, start finding out which projects maybe fit your tech stack or skills. So maybe if you come from like, I don't know, uh, a Java background, maybe R3 might be good for your recorder because that's a Kotlin, which is similar, like a JVM type um, technology stack. That might suit you better. So start looking at your technology stack, start looking at which organizations or platforms are, are utilizing those, and then just get onto GitHub and just start looking at what these guys are doing. Download the software, start messing around with it. Have a play. There's, yeah, some, exactly. there's some really great yeah, Hello yeah. Worlds out there, and gr- especially the Ethereum community, but now increasingly Hyperledger and Corda have great communities around 
around them and a lot of developer support and evangelism. So if you get to their websites and there's many of the folks from, from all of those projects have been on this podcast before, there's, there's a lot out there if you just do a, a cursory bit of Googling. But what about the, the companies looking to bring the staff in? Like what advice are you giving to them and what should they be looking for? Especially if, um, you know, like checking Git repos isn't their, their MO. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants the best developers and everyone wants to pay as little as they can get away when they need them straight away. So I would I would always try and go through a bit of an exercise with them in terms of just trying to evaluate what it is you're looking for. So in terms of like, do you need someone who does core blockchain or are you just building like Ethereum smart contracts on top of what you're doing or evaluating what you're actually looking for? Once you've got that idea, then try and prioritize in terms of time, quality or cost. Do you need them straight away or can you wait? quality do you need them to have specific blockchain experience or are you comfortable upskilling them with blockchain later on or maybe have someone in the team who can help upskill them and it all cost are you willing to pay over the market to get the best guys or are you on a budget in terms of limited what you're looking for so that's I think it's a really interesting point what do you want to be good at as an organization should inform how you hire because you can go spin up ethereum nodes inside the azure platform or aws quite easily with a lot of tools that sit around it from the likes of consensus and parity and others that that are there ready to use and same goes for hyperledger same goes for corda and some of the other platforms that are out there the developer tool sets are pretty good there are frameworks that are emerging they're still early so your developers you don't necessarily need to go to the core you can get some people that like really focus on building for what your needs are so as a business you kind of have to know what you want and and how do you how do you get to towards that do you think in terms of sort of where the business understands what they're looking to get out of there yeah well it depends i mean a lot of consultancies uh, are just looking at right well i've got clients here how can i start not looking like i'm way behind the curve on this (laughs) so then they think generally right i'll get in a really really like hot architect and generally they'll need the best of the best because they'll be speaking to already guys who are well established in the space if you're a startup and stuff you chances are you probably have a cto that already understands this this market and so i would normally say to them do, do they actually specifically need blockchain experience because if you're looking at bringing guys in with blockchain experience you're going to be paying a premium for that and you might not even need to i mean a lot of these guys can upskill quite quickly on this stuff well i think it's fair to say that the first blockchain employee was probably satoshi nakamoto in 2008 there aren't a lot of there's probably nobody on the planet really with 10 years of blockchain experience so we've we've all had to learn this pretty quickly and and good skills are reusable right so uh yeah take that time and and invest that energy i think it's it's uh, sage advice so any final thoughts for our listeners anyone looking to get into this space how can they find out more about what you do yeah so so just in terms of getting into the space there, there is no shortage of of meetups wherever you are whether it's you know berlin london all over the place so i'd encourage people to go to meetups and speak to other developers other guys in the space um i'd also say just get onto these github and just check out what people are doing in it what are people uploading what necessarily matches their tech stack in terms of getting in touch with with us and stuff i get called regularly from guys i'm thinking about maybe putting together a post where maybe i can structure in terms of what tech stacks each of these platforms are using so that people can make a quick like decision in terms of i'm more this or maybe i look at this specific platform and stuff um i'm um I'm generally always able to sort of catch up with these guys and I love this space anyway so I've got no problem speaking to people about it if they want to know more. We'll find out more about Zeth. Is it Plexus? Yeah, PlexusRS.com or on Twitter Zeth underscore Plexus. That's the one. All right, so thank you very much for being on the show, Zeth. Cool. Thank you very much. Up next, we're talking to Chris Baniski to find out more about what happened with the Bitcoin fork and Bitcoin Cash. 
Alrighty, thanks very much to Zeth. And now we're heading on over to hear from Chris Berniski and, uh, of course, our own Colin Platt on the fallout from the Bitcoin fork, Bitcoin cash piece, and everything that's happening since. We covered this a little bit last week, but uh, we're coming back to it for an in-depth discussion. Now the fallout has all happened and we know what's going on. So, Chris, thank you very much for being back on the show with us. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm here with a bagel and coffee, ready to talk blockchain. That's That sounds like the perfect start to your day, sir. Um, and Colin, thanks for being back with us as always. Uh, no bagel, but I got a beer over here. Uh, bagels and beer. This is like the perfect recipe for blockchain success. Uh, so we covered a little bit last week, but uh, you know, Colin, just uh, start us back up. Um, Bitcoin fork, Bitcoin cash. What does that mean? And then let's drop into recap of what happened, if you may. Yeah, so um, late last week, uh, the very tail end of the month of July, uh, very beginning of August, technically on the 1st of August, at uh, approximately 12.20 in the afternoon, UTC, Bitcoin uh, became two. Uh, it gave birth to uh, Bitcoin Cash. She was a healthy baby. What this means concretely is we had a hard fork. Hard forks are when Bitcoin consciously decides that uh, it's going to go two different directions, you can imagine you're driving down a road and it splits in two. The original one, uh, Bitcoin BTC, uh, maintained and, and didn't really change course, but uh, this new Bitcoin cash was born. Uh, currently, it's trading somewhere in the realm of 300 to $350, which is significantly less than the original Bitcoin, which is now trading at about 10 times that. Um, now, bear in mind when you listen to it, the prices could be anywhere. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting here that uh, we had originally built this system way back in 2009 and said there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Now, depending on who you ask, uh, the, the number is still only 21 million maximum or 42 now. So, uh, Chris, really interested to hear what you what your thoughts are on it. Well, it was definitely fascinating. Shortly after the fork, we saw Bitcoin Cash push to about $1,000 or, or just shy of it. And that was largely a result of illiquidity in the markets. Um, I think as we talked about last week, you know, people weren't able to move their Bitcoin cash. If they had it, you know, under their own control, they weren't able to move it to exchanges. So there wasn't a proper market. Um, and so as people were able to do that, more selling pressure came online and Bitcoin cash displayed sustained softness for a while. But then I was particularly interested um, by where it, it bounced. You know, it, it bounced at around 200. And the reason I was intrigued by that is because when we returned to um, Bitcoin late 2013, November 2013, the first time it broke $1,000, and it sustained softness from there, Bitcoin actually based, um, it, it hit its bottom in January of 2015. So over a year later, at 175 and again bounced and then through much of 2015 based in that 200 zone. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, is 200 a magical psychological number? Is there something going on with the minor economics? Um, because this is the second time we've seen Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash. So a Bitcoin or a Bitcoin derivative fall from roughly a thousand and bounce off of 200. So I guess stay tuned on, on, on where that price action goes. Yeah, because I think even even at 200, it, it's still a top five or top 10 um, blockchain asset. We're, we're not talking about something that magically took off and is only worth $5 million in total. It's still, what, seven, eight billion dollars. It's, it's not. Yeah, right now. So it's at it's at 360. So it's it's just shy of six billion. And, you know, if we go back in time, 
I mean, Bitcoin crossed 360 at the end of 2015. And that wasn't that long ago. That wasn't even two years ago. So, you know, that is a significant amount of value for an asset to be holding. I think it's easy, you know, given the the bull market since the Winklevoss ETF um, rejection, given that bull market and, you know, Ether going 40x and, um, you know, the, the massive inflation of asset prices, it's easy for us to lose perspective on just how much value Bitcoin Cash is still storing. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you said something really interesting there a second ago about illiquidity. I- I've got I've got some price charts up in front of me. A lot of these exchanges either didn't issue the the holders of, of Bitcoin before the fork um, their new Bitcoin Cash tokens, and, and some of them did on a one-for-one basis. Um, but there was also the question with uh, the block time taking much longer in Bitcoin Cash blockchain. We know in Bitcoin, it averages about uh, every 10 minutes. I think originally Bitcoin Cash took much longer, which meant that the exchanges weren't letting people take their new Bitcoin Cash out or, or move it in. And that, that's kind of created a difference on price between some exchanges up to 30 40% as far as I can see in front of me between one exchange to the next. Do you think we'll see that kind of converge onto closer to a single price? I know it'll never be a single price, but at least not 30 40% difference. Right, because Bitcoin still hasn't converged on a single price across exchanges, right? So, yeah, I, I think you raise a good point in terms of um, a convergence upon a tighter price range decreasing the ability for arbitrage. Right now, there's a few things going on, right? The um, the exchanges have different levels of caution around, you know, what's happening here. Um, because it isn't it isn't a trivial task to split, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, because both assets are secured by the same private key, but just on two separate blockchains, right? And so there's a lot of confusion that comes up from that. Um, there's a lot of um, engineering that needs to go on to make sure there aren't replay attacks and all kinds of things that would cause an exchange to lose money and have to reimburse their customers. So that's one side of things, right? The engineering side of exchanges and different levels of caution and therefore delay in actually giving their customers their Bitcoin cash. On the other side is the the molasses um, that is Bitcoin Cash's blockchain, right? Because we've while we have gone through a couple difficulty adjustments, is my understanding. It's still, you know, when we looked at initially after the fork, I think it was nine hours before the the first block was mined. So you just can't even really transact Bitcoin Cash. Again, that will improve as well as the system adjusts to the hash rate that is supporting it. But it's just going to take a a period here for for things to, to free up. Yeah, and I think I think there's something really interesting there. So normally Bitcoin, the the difficulty or how hard it is to mine so that we can keep those blocks at 10 minutes, uh, adjust on a roughly two-week basis, and it's actually calculated over 2016 blocks. So if that, that basis of 10 minutes now goes all the way up to two hours, I mean, we're talking not, not a couple of weeks, maybe it's a little bit longer, we're talking about a couple of months potentially. So they had put a bit of code in there to make that happen a little bit quicker. And I think that we're we're somewhere around the the thirty to forty minute mark, but it's still going to take a little while before it fully kind of catches up with where it otherwise should be if the if the fork hadn't happened. I guess we could say. Definitely. Um, let's jump into into this idea of you know what a fork is and why we suddenly have two assets that are now worth more in value than the aggregate value of Bitcoin before the fork because I think it. It um, 
it confuses a lot of people, right? It's it's almost like creating value out of thin air. It, it is. And, and before we get into that, can I, can I ask just one thing? Now, there's different types of forks. We've heard about soft forks, hard forks. In this hard fork, there was, there was something called an airdrop. What is an airdrop, Chris? Well, typically, when I think of airdrops, I think of something like what Byteball is currently doing or Stellar did, where, you know, there's um, holders of an asset, uh, for example, Bitcoin. And if those holders register um, their address with that crypto asset, then they will get a distribution um, of some proportional nature to the um, amount of Bitcoin they were holding. In the case of Bitcoin Cash, I um, I was thinking it was just a, a split from a single chain. And now the exchanges might have gone through some kind of an airdrop process, but I'm not fully familiar with that. So, so what this means is um, when we talk about a split versus an airdrop is before when there was one chain, I had one private key that controlled one public address and one kind of account in Bitcoin. And all of a sudden, we kind of mirror what Bitcoin is at a certain point in time, like we take a picture, and we said, well, you had one. Now that same key and that same address exist simultaneously in two places, and they don't have the same dollar value, um, but you have two. And some of the exchanges said, well, because you don't control your private keys, we hold them uh, on your behalf, where some of them were willing to credit your balance on the exchange for this new Bitcoin cash. Is that is that kind of fair? So then the airdrop was done via exchanges. And that that would make sense, right? I, I think a lot of people, one good side effect of a lot of this is it has caused people to better understand the mechanics of how their Bitcoin is custodied, right? Um, a lot of exchanges only have a, a handful of um, public-private key pairs to custody all of their customers' exchanges. And that's for security reasons, but it does highlight the fact that, you know, in that in that case you do not have autonomy over the assets you hold. So I'm not perfectly familiar with all of the ways in which the exchanges handled the problem, but I could see some of them using using an airdrop. And, and something else that I thought was fascinating, because my background is, is in the financial markets, and we look at this initially, and a lot of other people I think were confused as well, um, as the price went up from somewhere around um, $2,200 to about $2,700, immediately before the fork happened. And I think the expectation was whatever the price of Bitcoin cash would be, it would drop kind of like going ex-dividend. But you corrected me on this and said that uh, it kind of had a different function. I'd, I'd like to hear kind of your view on that. Yeah, I think of it a bit like um, when eBay spun out PayPal from its service. And so now there's eBay that trades on the public markets and there's PayPal that trades on the public markets. And eBay provides different functionality and PayPal provides different functionality, similar to how, you know, Bitcoin, um, you know, is really focused on being an extremely secure store of value that will layer on payment functionality on top, whereas Bitcoin Cash is more focused on, you know, a global means of exchange and fit everything you can into eight megabyte blocks and, and, and sort of go that avenue. So two different networks providing two different services in a way, or at least ideologies on how to perform those services. And so that's how I would think of it. And that's how, you know, when, when we think about the value that has been created here, it's a rationale for why 
the sum of the parts is actually greater than than the whole that existed prior to the fork. And, and we've seen forks before. I know a lot of people are saying that this is really scary when we saw Bitcoin potentially forking. And, and I understand that Bitcoin could fork again uh, towards the end of the year, potentially. Um, a lot of people were putting out FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, we've seen this not so long ago with Ethereum. What, what was our experience there? With Ethereum, this was after the DAO hack. So late summer of last year of 2016. And that was a pretty different situation, right? There, um, the Ethereum team was working under the gun because there was a um, period, I think it was 28 days until the DAO hacker could move their funds. And so they had that as a ticking clock of how to handle the situation. And so while they did, in essence, pull the community on whether a hard fork would be tolerable or not, they weren't able to go through all the preparation that that happened here, even though, you know, it, the Bitcoin Cash hard fork was was a bit of surprise uh, of a surprise. But with with Ethereum, it was a forced hard fork to fix, um, you know, a, a really unfortunate situation. And so that created Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Now, what was fascinating about that situation is because the Ethereum network was under duress, not only did Ethereum first drop precipitously in value pre-fork, but after the fork, I think Ethereum got as low as uh, seven, 6 or $7. Ethereum Classic, you know, originally, it wasn't even listed on exchanges. It was, it was the big OTC desks that started trading it. And then I think Poloniex decided to list it. And then that kind of created this market for it. But the point being, after the Ethereum fork, you know, the combined value of the two assets was roughly a third of, you know, pre-DAO hack. And this is a situation where, you know, it's the opposite. The combined value is greater than the, than the prior. And so we may want to tease apart um, some of the differences there if, if we want to go down that path. I, I think, I mean, we, would, we really need to look back at that you know, after after both of these have kind of been through and compare it in a few months. But I, I think it's fascinating to see after all of the questions uh, and uncertainty we've seen. Yes, they have different reasons, but uh, they, they're similar technically. What happened to compare backwards in six, 12 months now? Maybe Bitcoin Cash will overtake Bitcoin uh, BTC. That That's completely possible. Maybe it could go to zero. Maybe they could both go to zero. We don't really know. There's so much uncertainty here. Now, I want to I want to ask you about a technical thing that I've, I've been watching quite closely, and we talked about briefly last week. There was a miner who was putting in the address of a Hong Kong hostel in there, um, and then there was an article that came out. They they stopped doing that, uh, but those those same addresses were still attached with somewhere around eighty to ninety percent of all of the Bitcoin cash blocks that have come out. Do you think that uh, we should be concerned at all about um, the centralization? of mining in Bitcoin Cash in particular? Well, it's definitely a centralized network right now. And, you know, because the hash rate is a fraction that of Bitcoin, it's easier for it to, to become centralized, right? Um, because someone can, can throw a much smaller amount of hash rate and proportionally get a larger share of the network. You know, I think we're, we're still in the very early stages of seeing different games that are going to be played. It's going to be a fascinating few months. I don't know how it's all going to pan out. I doubt that either one goes to zero, um, just because crypto assets tend to never die. Uh, you know, so long as there's, there's one computer running the code and one exchange listing the asset, there will be a market of buyers and sellers for that asset. 
but you're raising good points, Colin, in terms of, you know, really focusing on the miners and who the miner identities are, because there could be game playing here, right? We could see a 51% attack on Bitcoin Cash. Um, there's a lot of bad blood between the two camps. And um, we really haven't seen the uh, any of that play out yet. I think that's super interesting, Chris, because we uh, we find ourselves in a in a situation in which there's a lot of money riding on some developers arguing about the future of a platform, and it's a small number of people that can affect a large number of people, and the stakeholder community is is quite small, but the the amounts of money involved are quite large. Uh, so I've been sent a a link to a website called um, cash.coin.dance forward slash blocks. And there's some really interesting statistics in here. It's it's more or less live uh, looking at the Bitcoin Cash blockchain and looking at sort of uh, latest blocks, the last thousand blocks by mining pool for Bitcoin Cash. And it says that via BTC is around 11.3%, um, but unknown or other makes up sort of 83%. Uh, some really interesting thoughts there, as well as that there's been 239 blocks mined since the hard fork versus, the, so that's 898 blocks behind the original chain the bitcoin cash uh, blockchain is currently operating at 17 percent of the original chain's difficulty and the original blockchain has grown by 911.46 megabytes more than the bitcoin cash blockchain and it's currently 54 percent more profitable to mine the original uh, blockchain but 54% more profitable doesn't mean that Bitcoin Cash is not profitable. So to your point at the outset, Bitcoin Cash, even though it's smaller, even though it's running behind, still does have profitability. If you were to have the equipment and the ability to make a profit in Bitcoin, maybe you can make a profit in Bitcoin Cash. So we could see something happen here. It's certainly uh, very, very different to things we've seen before. You wouldn't imagine, like you say, um, PayPal and eBay spinning out. Um, there are two things that create value there with with bitcoin and ethereum uh, sorry with uh, ethereum and uh, ethereum classic we didn't necessarily see that play out um so if i'm sitting there and i had um, bitcoin at coinbase or kraken or via btc i've had a very different experience what are the differences in those experiences and uh, how do we think if we were to stare at the crystal ball that might start to play out chris with Coinbase, they, they put out a statement recently saying they will get their customers their Bitcoin cash by January 1st of 2018, I believe. And so, you know, if you were sort of an unknowing Coinbase customer and you didn't check the Bitcoin news that much and you bought it a couple of years ago because your, your crazy friend told you to, you know, you would never even really know. And I think that is in some ways a good thing, right? For the mainstream, because the mainstream as, as Colin said, you know, this FUD spreads fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and they get scared and they sell their assets or whatever it may be because they don't fully understand something. And so Coinbase, in a way, has sheltered their customers. I also think it's really important and good that Coinbase has decided to issue Bitcoin the, the Bitcoin cash to their customers because value has been created out of a pre-existing asset. And so people are entitled to that. Um, but then you look at Kraken, right? And Kraken has moved very quickly um, to allow traders to move Bitcoin Cash or trade or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, I think this comes down to different value propositions. Um, Coinbase is really focused on security, right, and, and never losing assets. And so, um, you know, they haven't lost anything. They, they just haven't enabled traders to trade with Bitcoin Cash yet. Kraken um, tends to add a few more exotic assets a little bit more quickly, 
And so, you know, that's a bit more of their value add and, and they have moved um, to, to support Bitcoin Cash for that reason. And I think I think that that uh, security aspect within this realm is quite interesting. But I, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that are going to come out of this, and we're going to need to follow up on it with you a few more times. So I hope you'll be patient with us and the listeners here. Um, but where, what do you think we're going to go kind of next from here? Well, I'm you know I'm generally fascinated by the, this whole idea of forks, and if if you'll allow me to to rant for a second, or not rant, just um, riff off of, of some of what's going on here. You know, when we fork um, a chain, what's happening there is the code and the data is replicated. And that means that the code and the data, that this is something that Joel Monegro, uh, formerly of Union Square Ventures, has taught me. The code and the data is not defensible, right? Because it's copy and paste and replicated. So then what becomes defensible and what causes people to jump on one blockchain versus the other is actually the governance, right? And the vision and the, and the ideology. So we have no precedent for this in terms of, can you imagine if someone, you know, didn't like Facebook and was like, well, I'm going to copy all that code and all that data and I'm going to move over here and, you know, I'm not going to let, you know, any advertisers on this platform. So that doesn't happen in the existing world. And now we, we live in this crypto asset world where governance becomes all the more important because if you're not being fair to your users or your users are disgruntled for any reason, even if it's just a subset of your users, your users can defect, replicate everything that you've created and continue on. Um, and so that's basically what's, what's happened here. And I would say, you know, the two constituents of the two different groups are happier with the way their respective blockchains are getting governed. And thus the value of those blockchains has become greater than the initial blockchain which had, you know, this, the, these two warring camps of governance. And so, you know, that is a fascinating thing that we're going to see, I think, play out again and again. The only thing I would caution the listeners um, about is not every fork is going to create more value, right? Um, if we look at these things from Metcalfe's law, and you take the square root of the number of connected nodes, a fork should actually decrease the value of the, of the two networks in whole. So we have to keep vigilant about why these things are happening and continue to study them because it's brand new and we have no precedent for it i love things that are brand new and that have no precedent though what an exciting time to be around i love that statement as well of like could you imagine if somebody took all of facebook's users data uh usernames passwords capabilities and just launched their own competitor to facebook with all of their existing users and said we're just going to change this bit of functionality but otherwise it's kind of the same and you can just access it like that as an accessible metaphor is about as good as it gets so chris um thank you for being with us once again sir chris where can people find out more about who you are and what you do the best place is on twitter as as always so c berniski my last name and then i'll be publishing a book this october with mcgraw hill called crypto assets the innovative investor's guide to bitcoin and beyond well i'm looking forward to that for sure and colin uh where can people find out about yourself are still on twitter colin g platt oh look he's, he's it's almost like he's getting tired of saying it so a big it's, I've, I've just become so french you have you have it's 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 like living there is getting to you already well a big thank you uh to all of our guests today um if you our listeners want to read more about the stories we discussed head on over to uh bi.11fs.com and you can find out more about uh the guests the hosts and, and everything we have uh if you like what you've heard please 
subscribe to the podcast. Uh, tell your friends to subscribe. Get everybody involved. Uh, tell your friends and colleagues to listen too. Uh, we'll have a lot more next week. I'm going to head off to the Edinburgh Fringe for a couple of days, and I'll see you soon. Uh, until next time, take care.